Well, you might not believe it, but we have reached our 24th message out of the book of Mark. We are flying through the book. It's going to take a break, a pause now for about six weeks because Sandy and I are making our way down to Florida, uh, leaving tomorrow morning. Uh, good news for us is that my battery didn't work today, and so I'm going to be able to get a new one to be put in before we leave on our trip, so that's kind of a, a nice deal. Rather than have it happen on the way, then I'd have to call Pastor Trinity to come and get us. So I don't want to have to do that. But six weeks from now, we'll be back. And so over the next six weeks, you got some really good stuff planned for you. Um, the, each of the pastors is taking a couple weeks in a, a, a six-week series, that has, or actually a five-week series that has to do with the book of Colossians. So you're going to learn a lot from them in the book of Colossians. So um, just make sure you see, keep coming and, and hearing what they have to share. So actually, Trinity, Pastor Trinity, Dave, and Greg will all have their part in this series in the book of Colossians. Now, we're in, in as I said, we're in our 24th uh, sermon. So right now, at the point where we are in chapter 10 of, of Mark's gospel, we're at the point when Jesus is about a week away from his triumphal entry and the Passover celebration that's going to take place. And so they're not very far off from what's going to be facing him when he gets to Jerusalem for the very last time. And where most pilgrims, and so there's probably a lot of pilgrims who are on the road at this time as well, and where most pilgrims would be uh, celebrating as they walk, uh, they would be singing some hymns, they would be re reciting scriptures, they would be looking forward to uh, getting together with family for this wonderful celebration called Passover. Uh, we see Jesus walking with his disciples, but it's really, he's walking silent, he, he's uh, uh, probably... Uh, 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 thinking about what's going to happen to him in the, in the days ahead and the, and the struggle that he's going to face and the trials that he's going to go through. And so he knows what's coming ahead. You, you get the feeling from the disciples that they kind of know a little bit of what's going to happen. Maybe not all, but some of what's going to happen. And so the description of them walking towards Jerusalem is like this. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, and while those who followed were afraid. Okay? And those two words, astonished and afraid, kind of give us a picture of what was going on, because the disciples are astonished because they, they, they know what's going to happen. They can't believe that Jesus is still going towards Jerusalem. I mean, they probably have been in hiding a bit, getting off by themselves, and now they're headed towards Jerusalem. And so they, they're astonished that Jesus would even be going to Jerusalem at this time. The other followers of him, I mean, the 12 are astonished, these, all these other followers, and there might have been, I mean, hundreds of people who were with Jesus at this time. If there were other pilgrims on the road, they might have joined Jesus' band as well. And they're afraid because they know that the word has been put out that anybody who knows the whereabouts of Jesus is report that to the chief priest so they can come and arrest Jesus and, and, and charge him for the crimes that they believe that he's committed. And so they're a little bit afraid of what's going on, maybe for their own safety, for Jesus' safety as well. And so all that's taking place. And so here they are walking, and Jesus reminds the disciples along the way, though, that here's what's going to happen to me when he gets there. So he takes them to the side, and he starts to tell them this. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed into the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later, 
he will rise. And so obviously Jesus is talking about himself when he talks about the Son of Man having these things happen to him. And this isn't the only time Jesus has made mention of that. Uh, in the book of Mark, this, we really see that this is the third time that Jesus has described to his disciples what is to befall him when he gets to Jerusalem here for the last time. And each time Jesus describes this, he describes a little bit more detail about what's going to happen. And so this time he tells them that I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, and they're the ones who are going to mock me and spit on me. They're the ones who are going to flog me and scourge me. They're the ones who are going to kill me. But after that happens, I will rise in three days. And so over those last few months, um, they've been give, he's been giving them progressive revelation of what he's going to be going through uh, when he gets to Jerusalem, so they can know the events so they're not surprised by what takes place. And yet, you know, we know that the disciples still don't get it. They still don't get what's really going to happen, and they don't really understand all that's going to take place. And part of the reason why is that even though Jesus talks, is trying to talk plainly to them about what he's going to go through, uh, they're preoccupied with some of the other things that have already gone on, and they keep thinking about those things instead. And so, and what they're dealing with still, I believe, because of what we'll see in the text today, is that they're still dealing with, with the idea of who of us is the greatest in God's eyes? Who of us is the greatest in our Lord's eyes? And so they're still dealing with that as well. Remember, it all began when they were coming down from Caesarea Philippi down to Capernaum. And on that journey down there, uh, because of the, some being able, to, some of the disciples seeing the Lord transfigured and others not being able to, you know, cast a demon out of a, a demon-possessed boy, a whole discussion came up about which one of them was the greatest, who was doing the best job. And so they're still dealing with that as they make their way to Jerusalem. And you remember when they finally get down to Capernaum, where they're going to stay in Peter's house, Jesus asked the question, what, what were you guys talking about or what were you arguing about when you were traveling along the way with me? And at first they don't want to tell him, but they, finally they admit to the fact that they were arguing about who is the greatest. And then they ask Jesus bluntly, who do you say is the greatest? And that's when Jesus grabs that little child in Peter's house, puts that little child before them. I don't know if it was one of the kids or one of the cousins or whoever it was, but there was a kid there in the, in the, in the living room with him, and he grabs that kid, puts him in front of him, and he says to his disciples, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus equates greatness with humility, doesn't he? That if we're going to be great in God's kingdom, the operating principle of God's kingdom is not that we elevate ourselves, but we bring ourselves lower than others to elevate others. And so it's all about a spirit of humility around others. It's a, a spirit of, of exalting others above ourselves. In fact, that whole issue, I mean, for them wondering who's the greatest, doesn't end there, does it? And, and what we find out, if you've read through the Gospel of Luke, you find at the end of the Gospel of Luke, that even on the night when Jesus is with his disciples for the very last time, Passover meal is, is going to take place, he's gathered them together, his heart is, is saddened because he knows what's going to befall that night. What are they still worried about? Who's the greatest? And so Luke tells us, here, this is the night when our Lord is betrayed. Here's what it says. A dispute also arose among them, talking about the disciples, 12 disciples, as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. 
And so here they are around the table, and they're still worrying about that. And Jesus says to them, For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? And they all agreed with that because they were all at the table. They were all waiting for somebody to serve them, but none of them were willing to serve. And so Jesus says, who's the greatest? Uh, isn't it the ones who sit at the table? And they would say, yes, it is. It's the one who gets served. That's the person who's greatest. The greatest people are served by others. And so what does Jesus say? But I am among you as one who serves. And so it's a whole different understanding of greatness, guys, than what you think it is. Well, today, we're looking at another story. And again, this story is all about greatness and what Jesus has to say about greatness. And this time, the story actually revolves around, and you, may, you probably know the story, where James and John come up to Jesus and ask him to, to, when he comes in his kingdom, to let them sit at his right side and at his right left side as he takes rulership in his kingdom. So here's what it says. Then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, who in the world says things like that, right? I mean, how many people come up to you and say, I'm not going to tell you what I want, but I want you to say yes before I tell you. I mean, this is what kids do, don't they? This is what our kids did sometimes for Sandy and I. They would come up and say, you know, before I tell you what, Dad, can you just say yes? And, I, and my response is, just tell me what you want, okay? That's Jesus' response as well. And so here are these guys, here is James and John, hoping that they can get Jesus to promise something before, because you know what they know? They know. Why would you ask somebody to promise something before you even knew what they were going to uh, what they knew what you were going to say. Why would you ask them to promise yes before they knew what you were going to say? Because you knew they probably wouldn't be happy. So you try to get them to make the promise, and then you tell them what's coming. And so Jesus says to them, just tell me, just tell me what you want. What do you want me to do for you? And they replied, sit, let us sit at your right and at your left in your glory. In other words, let us, when you come in your glory, let us be closest to you, one on the right and one on the left. Now, let me ask you this. Why would they ask that at this time? I mean, they're coming down, they're heading towards Jerusalem. They know that Jesus has just told them that he's going to be killed there and he's going to one day rise again. Why are they asking this question at that time um, for us to be able to sit at your right and be able to sit at your left. Because here's the reason why. Still ringing in their ears is what they heard Jesus say just a, a, maybe a day or two earlier to that rich young ruler. Remember, the rich young ruler had come to Jesus. They, he asked Jesus, Lord, or good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, are you good at keeping the commandments? And he said, yes, I've kept all the commandments since I've been a child. And then Jesus said, well, there's one thing you lack. Go sell all you have, give to the poor, come follow me. And Jesus understood that in that moment, the thing that was keeping him from, from being a part of the kingdom, of being a part of his followers was the fact that he had great wealth that was a hindering him from being willing to give all that up to come and follow Jesus. And so he says, sell all you have, give away all that you have, and then come and follow me. And we heard in that story that that day, 
and the disciples witnessed it happening, that day that man looked down to the ground and walked away from being a follower of Jesus. In sadness, he walked away because he wasn't at that point able to give up the wealth that he had and to come and follow Jesus. Now, the disciples see that, and they hear Jesus say, Look how hard it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he says, it's harder for a rich man to get in the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And out of that whole discussion, Peter answers Jesus, or says to Jesus this. He says, we have left everything to follow you, Lord. I mean, this guy didn't leave it. We left everything to follow you. What do we get when, we come, when you come in your kingdom? What's going to be the reward that we receive because we've given up everything to follow you? And here is our Lord's response. Let's, let me take you to Matthew's gospel, parallel passage that kind of gives you an understanding of what Jesus says. He tells them this, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, at the end of the age when everything is renewed, Things change. The kingdom is brought in. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. See, here's what James and John heard as they, they, they were listening to Jesus, that they're still thinking about thrones. There's going to be thrones. Thrones. We're going to have our own throne. We're going to be sitting on a throne. There'll be a, all 12 of us will sit on a throne. Three, six on Jesus' left side, six on Jesus' right side. Oh, don't you, James, don't you think we should be right next to Jesus? Let's go ask Jesus right now for him to put us on his right, on his left. So we'll sit on the throne right next to his throne. They're still thinking about the ruling with Jesus, that they're going to be receiving the greatness of being able to rule with Jesus. And so they make the request, Jesus, you know, it'd be great for us to be able to sit next to you. But they're not the only ones that did that. See, I think, I think they're finding out that Jesus doesn't respond immediately as they hoped he would. And so what do they do? They go to their mom and say to her, their mom, hey, mom, come on and ask for us that we could be at his right hand and his left hand when he starts ruling. And so what do we have? We have in Matthew's gospel, it says this, and then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. See, so they're tagging along. And, and, kneel, and she kneels before him and she asks for something. And she said to him, she asked him for something. And we know what she asked him for. And, and he said to her, what do you want? And she said, grant that my two sons... The two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right and one on your left, in the kingdom, when you come in your kingdom. Have you ever met a mom like that? Maybe more importantly, are you a mom like that? <laughs> we call, we have a, we used to, I don't know if we still do, we used to call them helicopter moms, don't we? Just hovering over their kids to make sure everything goes right for them. They get all the best stuff, all the favors, all the rewards, uh, everything that you could get, get to my kids first. So, so I want to make sure that what, what my kids get coming, they get coming to them first. And so this is really kind of, you get this feeling here. And so James and John's mom makes a request. And you know what? It's not just any mom here. This is the mom who's, James and John's mom. This is the mom who is, get this, this is Jesus' aunt. Her name is Salome. She is sister to Mary, who's the mother of Jesus. She's a mother of James and John's, which means that she's asking for this favor because her boys are first cousins to Jesus. And so it's almost like, it's like 
Jesus, this is anti-Salom talking to you, so just can, can you listen up a little bit? I mean, when my boys knew that you were, gonna, you were looking for followers and you said, come follow me, you know, they came right away, Jesus, right? They didn't hesitate at all. First cousins, you, they knew you. Uh, they would played with you. Uh, they were willing to leave everything behind to be with you. And you know what, Jesus, I, I did the same thing. I, I came with them as well. That's why I'm here today. You know, l- let's make this a family thing. Can we? Let's just keep it in the family. Let's make sure that, you know, first cousins, first cousin, first cousin, they should be the closest in your kingdom sitting on the throne right next to you. And, I know, and you, know, you know, you we understand how we operate like that. We want the best for our kids. And uh, we want to get them to be the nearest to the ones that we think are the greatest. And so he, this is just what this mom is doing. And, and Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And then he says to James and John again, can you drink the cup that I drink and, or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And, you know, what, are they, what would you think they would say? Well, I think we can. No, they said, yeah, we can. We can do that. Yeah, that's no problem. We'll do that. And Jesus says, okay, you can do that, and you will do that. And then he adds, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom have, they have been prepared. Now, and here's where, where that brings us. When the ten heard about this, the ten other disciples, what happens? All of a sudden a fight breaks out. They're indignant. They're angry. And they can't believe that James and John had the audacity to send their mom and have her mom, their mom, ask for this special favor on their behalf. And so they're indignant about what goes on. And all of a sudden Jesus realizes these guys are still dealing with who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They haven't left that. They're still dealing with that. And so what does Jesus do? Mark 10, 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve or be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, greatness and servanthood go together. And if we're going to be great in the kingdom, we have to be the servant, the greatest servant of the kingdom. And you know, there's things that we say, things like great teachers serve their students, Great salesmen, they're the ones who serve their customers. Great uh, coaches serve their, their, their uh, team members. Great managers serve their workers. Great leaders serve their followers. Great disciples serve one another. The, the key of being great is through the pathway of servanthood, isn't it? In fact, you remember in the Old Testament when when uh, Rehoboam is right on the verge of becoming the next king of Israel. Solomon has died, great king. Uh, He has a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam is next in line to become the king. Solomon, at the end of his life, though, um, became a a king who uh, required 
forced labor of the people of Israel to complete all his building projects. And so they were burdened heavily upon the requirement that King Solomon put upon their lives. And so when Rehoboam was coming to power, the, the, some of the elders came to him from the, the tribes and said, if you will just lighten up a little bit, we, our, our nation will serve you. If you could just not be so uh, harsh to us as your father was, we'd gladly serve you for all your days you are here. In fact, here's how they said it. If today you will be, be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, okay, that you'll lighten up things and serve them, they will always be your servants, okay? That's great advice. But Rehoboam didn't listen. And the end is that the nation split. You know what happened in the history of Israel. That ten tribes went on their own under Jeroboam. The other two tribes stayed with Rehoboam, but really didn't approve of what he was doing. Uh, but they remained faithful still. But being willing to serve is a secret to gaining greatness, isn't it? That's how you become great in a nation. And this is a secret that Jesus wanted the disciples to understand. That if you're going to be a follower of me, what it means is that you have to be a, a servant for me. That you have to serve others. And, and, and in fact, I like how Paul put it, and you, and you maybe know this story as well. When Paul comes to the believers in Corinth, he sees all kinds of fighting taking place there, all kinds of arguing. Some of it is who's over the leadership of the church. And some were saying, I'm of Paul. Others were saying, I'm of Apollos. Others were saying, I'm of Peter. And so they had all these divisions taking place in the church, and Paul comes into that, and what does he say in, in chapter 4, verse 1? So then, men ought to regard us as simply as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. All of we, see, I, we're not looking to be great, you guys. We're looking to, to have you see us as servants of Jesus Christ, entrusted with the secret things that we are going to share with you. And obviously they didn't get it because when Paul writes them a second letter, he deals with the exact same thing again. So he writes them back in his second letter, which is really his third letter, and he says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. As servants. We are considered servants. Let me, th let me have you look at it this way. If you were to go out to eat after church today, at a restaurant, and you spilled your drink on your, on, on your table, so there's a mess on your table, um, and your waitress comes to you with a towel to wipe it up. You don't say to her, wow, you brought a towel. I didn't expect you to do anything. No, you, under, you want to understand that she's there at your table to take care of you, to serve you. And so you would be glad, rather than surprised, you would be glad that she brought the towel to clean up the mess because you know that you would understand that's part of her job, okay? See, what would surprise you is if you stood off to the side, you spill your drink, and you have nothing to, to clean it up with, and you say, could you please bring me a towel so we could clean this up? And she says, no, I'm not going to bring you a towel. If you made the mess, you clean it up. That's not my job. Okay? That would surprise you. Why? Because you understand her role as a servant. Servants are there to serve those who they are supposed to serve. And that's the requirement of them. And that's how Jesus wants us to see ourselves, isn't it? He's really making the case that we are to see ourselves as servants. Look at it this way. When somebody, when somebody says, what a wonderful person you are, always working in the nursery, uh, giving your time, and being that person who's willing to change the dirty diaper of my baby, 
I mean, who does that? I mean, but you, you're doing that. I mean, how, you are su you're such a wonderful person. You're such an amazing person. Uh, what is our response to be? Well, if we're going to follow what Jesus says, here's our response. I'm just doing my job. I mean, I took the job to be in the nursery, and I know that this is part of the job description of taking care of your child in the nursery, and so if your child needs to have his diapers changed, I'm glad to do it because that's what it means to be a servant. I'm here to serve your kids in the nursery to have their needs met. See, the question that we should be asking is, is this. Am I the kind of servant that Christ is pleased with? When I look at my life, when I'm doing service in, his, in the church, am I doing it in such a way that my master would be pleased with the way I'm doing it? Or am I like that, like that waiter or waitress that says, that's not my job, that's somebody else's job. They made the mess, they take care of it. See, Jesus is calling us to have a servant's heart that causes us to see each other as people that we can meet their needs. And so we give ourselves to meeting their needs. I mean, it's like a, a lifeguard, right, who sees somebody drowning, dives in, rescues them, then comes back to shore, drags this person back to shore, and that person says, I would have drowned except that this person saved me. They were so wonderful. They are so amazing. How can I thank them? I can't, I, I, I can't express my gratitude deeply enough. And what do they say when they're interviewed? You know what? It wasn't about me. I was just doing my job. This is what I was trained to do. This is what I had the duty to do. I was on, on a, a lifeguard in order to save people's lives. That's all I'm doing. I'm just doing the job that I took. And so next time somebody says to you what? You're so wonderful that you hosted that Bible study. I mean, it's so wonderful that you, you work in Awana week after week and my kids are learning so much. You know what you can say? I don't know if I want to say you should say, but you know what you can say? Thanks, I appreciate hearing that, but here, here's the thing. It's, it's my job. I'm just doing what the Lord has asked me to do. I felt the Lord calling me to, to work with the Awana kids, and I see it as my job. And so I'm glad to do what I can to help your kids come to a greater depth of understanding about who Jesus is and how we can touch their lives. Now, if that seems too much for you to do, well, i got to take you then to Luke chapter 17. Because in Luke chapter 17, Jesus himself is telling a parable, isn't he? And the parable is about a, a man, a servant of a master who's out in the field working all day long, in the heat of the day, he's taking care of the sheep, he's plowing the field, he comes home at the end of the day, he's exhausted, he's tired, and he sees his master, he walks into the house, and what's the first thing the master says to him? Oh, you work so hard today, take a break, oh, I'm so glad what you've done, why don't you sit down, let me give you something cool to drink, and just kind of take some, you know, cut couple hours, get refreshed and re renewed or restored, and, uh, and then you can go back to your work. Is that what the master says? Well, not according to Jesus. Here's what the master says according to Jesus. Prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. And then Jesus adds this. Would we thank, would he thank the servant because he did what he was told? Now, it would be nice, right? But it's not expected because this guy's the servant. He's, a, he's serving the master. And then Jesus adds this, okay? Let's make the connection. That was there, 
This is now, this is how it applies to us. So you also, okay? That means he's talking to you and me. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We only have done our duty. Just our duty, nothing more. I just did the job that I, I've been called to do. See, when you go the extra mile, when you give the extra hour, when you share the extra dollar, and people are amazed of what you've done, you know, the, the hard attitude that Jesus wants to have is this. I only do that because I'm a servant. It's just the job. It's just the duty that I've been given as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's all it is. The whole point of the message is clear, isn't it? What Jesus is doing to his disciples that day, so let's take it back to the context of Jesus with his disciples headed towards Jerusalem, hearing them ask if they can be on the right and the left of him, and then all the others getting angry because they all think they should have those places. He just says, you know what? Rather than taking the role of trying to be the greatest, take the role of trying to be the servant. Just serve one another. And make that the goal of your life. After all, that's why I called you. That's your duty. That's your job, to serve one another. Here's what I'm amazed at when I think about this. It's easy for us, isn't it? It's easy for us to see if we're doing a good job as a servant. Because if we come here on a Sunday morning thinking, who's going to meet my needs today? Who's going to give me what I want to have? rather than come here and say, I wonder who I can touch today. I wonder who I can serve today in order to lift them up. See, that's how the church is called to be, isn't it? A place where Paul says, we're just servants of Jesus Christ. And you and I have been called to the same position, not to be lording over one another, but be servants of one another. And it's easy for us to see if our heart is to say, you know what, I love serving people here. That's how God wants us to respond to each other. I love serving you because of my Lord Jesus Christ has asked me to do it. I hope that's your heart. That's a heart that Jesus wants us all to have. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you again that you, you push us in this area because fact of the matter is we, we do like to sit at table and have people serve us at times. But really the call that we're hearing from you is that we serve each other. That we find the means and the ability to elevate others and to help them meet their needs and to give ourselves to their well-being. And so, Father, help us be able to have this heart that you had for us, where you served us to the point where you sacrificed your very life and service for us. And so, Father, move us in that position, in that place as well, where we are just servants doing the duty that you've called us to do. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me as we close in song.